Well, brothers and sisters, when you became a Christian, it didn't take long before you realized that you had a new enemy that you didn't have before. An enemy that was out to harm you, and if it was possible even to destroy you, thank God it is not possible. And this enemy, of course, I'm talking about is the devil or Satan. And the Bible says that the devil has a lot of schemes, a lot of wiles, devices. He has a lot of tricks by which he seeks to ensnare you as God's people. Again, as I said this morning, it should be encouraging to us. As Paul says, we are not ignorant of his devices. We know his ways. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ faced the schemes of the devil in a way far more intensely than we ever will when he was on the earth. He faced them directly from the devil. Remember when he was tempted by the devil directly in the wilderness. And he faced and came up against the devices, the wicked devices of the devil indirectly through the devil's servants, the enemies of Jesus who sought his demise from the beginning. These schemes were used against Jesus. And when he comes to Jerusalem for the final week of his life, his enemies who are desiring his demise think this is the opportunity to arrest him and to destroy him. But they need a grounds of accusation against him. And so we find that in this last week of our Lord's mortal life on earth, various efforts are made to accuse him and to get him to incriminate himself so they would have a grounds for arresting him and ultimately putting him to death. We studied one such attempt a couple weeks ago, recorded in the end of Mark 11. The chief priests, scribes, and elders in this case come to Jesus with the intimidating question, by what authority are you doing these things? Do you remember how Jesus confounded them? He answered their question with a question. Let me ask you a question. The baptism of John, from heaven or from men? And he wisely put them on the horns of a dilemma. And rather than get impaled on either of those horns of the dilemma, they chose the coward's way out. They chose the liar's way out. And they said, we do not know. And then remember, Jesus then goes on the offensive. And he tells that parable we call the parable of the vineyard. Israel is the vineyard. God is the owner of the vineyard. And this vineyard owner has caretakers of the vineyard who would represent the former kings and priests and rulers in Israel who were to care for the vineyard. When the owner of the vineyard sends some representatives to, you know, get some return on his investment, remember what the caretakers do. They beat some of those representatives and they kill others. This speaks, of course, of the way the prophets of God were treated by Israel in the past. God sent them, it says, again and again. But time after time, the rulers of Israel would beat them and mistreat them and even kill them. Then finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I'll send my son. Surely they will respect my son. But when the son comes, they take him and kill him. What is Jesus doing in this parable of the vineyard? He's certainly indicting the nation of Israel in its past for the way they treated God's prophets. He's also indicting the leaders in front of him 
predicting that they would kill the very Son of God, whom he, of course, claimed to be. If we were to compare these confrontations between the enemies of Jesus and Jesus with a boxing match, we might say that with that first question that he answers with a question, he rocks them back on their heels. By telling this parable, he knocks them to the canvas. But they're not done with Jesus. That was round one. They're going to come at him in round two. They're going to try something different this time. And here we're going to see the variety of the devil's schemes. As I said earlier, the devil can roar like a lion. He can come with intimidation, but he can also come like an angel of light. In the first round, we might say they come like a roaring lion to intimidate Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things? You don't have proper ecclesiastical ordination. And they try to intimidate him. What we're going to see in this further attack upon Jesus, Satan through his servants comes more like an angel of light. They're going to come with honey-coated flattery. In the first attack, they try to get Jesus in trouble with the ecclesiastical authorities. In the second attack, they're going to try to get him in trouble with the civil Roman authorities. But friends, as we saw with round one, Jesus was the victor. He's going to be the victor again in round two. Our text is Mark 12, 13 to 17. Follow or listen as I read that text. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and transcription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Actually, in the Greek, greatly amazed at him. From this passage, I want us to see three things, what I'm calling the combined questioners, the controversial question, and then the confounding answer given by Jesus to the question. First, the combined questioners. Again, look at the text. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know, etc." Well, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. You're not partial to any. You teach the way of God in truth. Consider three observations under this heading, the combined questioners. First of all, their suspicious unity. You notice who's coming to Jesus this time? Herodians and 
Pharisees. And if we know, know just a little bit about the politics and religion of the first century, you will recognize that these two groups are strange bedfellows. The Herodians were a minor political party among the Jews who were supportive of the Herodian dynasty. Now, remember, the Herod family was a corrupt family, an ambitious family, beginning with Antipater, who was the father of Herod the Great and lived at the end of the century before Jesus came. And the Herod family were political opportunists. They had sidled up to the Roman powers and through their craft and ambition were able to secure positions of authority in Palestine. And the Herod party was somewhat sympathetic to the Jewish religion. So many of the Jews thought they're a little less severe than the other uh, purely Roman leaders. And so there were some of the Jews who supported the Herod party. Now, the Herod party was very worldly. They were very much in favor of Greek and Roman culture, which included Greek art and architecture and, and athletics. They were only nominally religious, at bottom, they were very worldly and sensual. So you have the Herod party, a bunch of superficially religious people, but very much in favor of, of the political uh, party of the Herods. And so you have the Herod party. And then you have the Pharisees. And as you know, they were totally opposite to the Herodians. The Pharisees were the super religious ones. They were the ones who wanted to protect Judaism against the encroachment of Greek and Roman pagan culture, so much so that they even built a hedge around the law. The law of God wasn't enough. So they added to the law of God all of their traditions, all of their man-made rules to try to protect Judaism against the encroachment of paganism. So here you have these two groups that were very different from one another. You have the uh, pagan, superficially religious Herodians, and you have the super-religious Pharisees. And you look at that and you say, wait, what do, what do these two groups have in common? They're so different. They hated each other, by the way. Well, it's clear from the text that what they have in common is a shared hatred and opposition to Jesus. Even though the one group was super-religious and the other group was only superficially religious, they recognized in Jesus a threat to both of them. And you can see why. Why was Jesus a threat to the Herodians in their worldliness, in their fleshliness? Well, Jesus in his teaching was contrary to that. Jesus taught against worldliness. He taught an otherworldly ethic. He taught us not to lay up our treasures on earth, not to live according to the lusts and desires of our flesh, and not to live centrally, but to lay up treasures in heaven. And so Jesus was a threat to the worldly Herodians, who were only superficially religious. But you say, why was he a threat to the Pharisees? They were the super-religious ones. Yes, they were. But the religion was contrary to the religion of Jesus. The religion of the Pharisees, as we well know from the Gospels, was a religion that was very external, very formalistic, very ceremonial. It was not a religion of the heart. And Jesus was all about the heart. He said the man, man's root problem is, is his heart. Out of the heart of man proceeds the evil thoughts, the murders, the adulteries. It's the heart of man. It's the core of his being that is his problem, not merely his outward behavior. And Jesus taught that we needed to be connected to God at a heart level. In fact, he taught that we really need a new heart. 
If your life is going to bear good fruit, it needs to become a good tree. And so Jesus' religion of the heart was contrary to the superficial, externalistic, formalistic, ceremonial religion of the Pharisees. And so he was a threat not only to the worldly Herodians. Jesus was a threat to the superficially religious Pharisees as well. And so we have in the, in the words of um, one commentator, you have both the sanctimonious and the sacrilegious coming together in a suspicious unity against Jesus. But then note their malicious flattery. Again, look at the text, verse 14. They came and said to him, teacher, we know that you're a truth, you are truthful. You defer to no one, for you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. The words are honey-coated words of the flatterer. Again, as one commentator says, earlier they came with accusation. Now they're coming at Jesus with adulation. You hear how their words drip with admiration and seeming adoration. It's almost like we, they want to become his followers, the way they're, they're flattering him. But friends, we ought to think of the words of Psalm 55, 21, which says, His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. That's possible, isn't it? That's describing the flatterer. Speech smooth as butter, but hiding a heart at enmity. And their flattery was malicious. How do we know? Well, it says they came, quote, in order to trap him in a statement. And the word here, uh, trap, is the word used for catching an animal or catching fish. They're coming to ensnare Jesus with their words. And we can see how their flattery was intended to ensnare Jesus. Oh, you're one who speaks truth. You don't defer to anybody. They wanted to get Jesus in trouble with the civil authorities, with the Romans. And perhaps they were buttering him up. Like, you don't care what anybody thinks, Jesus. You're going to say the truth. Perhaps they were trying to tempt him to say something blunt that would get him in trouble with the civil Roman authorities. You defer to no one. You're not partial. And so we see that they were trying to trap him. So they come with malicious flattery. And brothers and sisters, flattery is always malicious. The proverb, and I looked it up this morning, it's 29.5, says, he who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Do you know the difference between malicious flattery and sincere praise? Let me point out a few things. Sincere praise speaks the truth. And they were speaking the truth here, but flattery doesn't always speak the truth. It often uses exaggeration. Sincere praise speaks out of true admiration for someone or something about them, whereas flattery often does not. But here's the heart of it. Sincere praise is given for the good of the other person. When you praise someone, You're calling attention to something that God is doing in their life. To encourage them in the Lord. To encourage them that that God's at work in you. God is using you. You're doing it for their good, to build them up in the Lord. Flattery, I submit to you, 
always has a self-centered motive. If I flatter you, it's because ultimately I want something from you. I want to gain some advantage, some favor, maybe some praise in return. Praise is other-oriented and truly loving. Flattery is always self-centered and wants to benefit. Sincere praise strengthens in the Lord. Flattery tempts to pride and egotism. And so it was here. Their so-called praise was malicious flattery. They're looking to trap Jesus in his words so that they can find a grounds for arresting him and accusing him, and they're using flattering words. The third sub-point under this first point, I'm calling their atrocious hypocrisy. Now, we know they're hypocrites because in verse 15, the text says, but knowing their hypocrisy. And you know what a hypocrite is, right? The very hypocrites, the Greek word, it means a play actor. What is an actor? We watch movies and we see actors and actresses, and they're given a role to play. They're given a person to represent. And so they try to get into character by thinking the way that person thinks and and using that person's mannerisms and speaking and feeling the way that person feels. But it's not them, right? They're playing a role. They're acting. That's what a religious hypocrite is. And all hypocrisy is wicked. Jesus hated the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But I'm calling this particular display of hypocrisy atrocious hypocrisy. It's especially bad, and let me tell you why. Notice the things that they are saying about Jesus, which they understood were characteristic of him. You are truthful. They knew that Jesus was a truth-loving and truth-speaking man, even like God, who cannot lie. You defer to no one. They knew that Jesus didn't tailor his message to suit his audience. He spoke the same thing to everybody. He wasn't trying to, to play up to people to gain some personal advantage. You're not partial to any, great or small, educated, uneducated, no partiality with Jesus. And they said, you teach the way of God in truth. Whatever God says is what you teach, Jesus. Now, when you hear that as a believer, your Lord described that way, you say, yes, that's what I love about Jesus. That's why I love Jesus, because he's a man of truth. He's the God-man who is the truth. He's not like so many of the slippery, slimy politicians that we have who tell people what they want to hear, and then every once in a while, a little bit of truth leaks out, and they get a hue and cry against it, and they do what? They, they um, walk it back. Isn't that the phrase, right? Uh-oh, I spoke truth. People didn't like it. So they walk it back, and they make excuses. Jesus is not like a slippery politician, a slick politician. He's, he speaks the truth. He defers to no one. He's not a man-pleasing person. We hear that, and we say, yeah, that's... That's our Lord. That's why we love him. It's what we love about him. But the bad thing about these guys is they could recognize this about Jesus. They recognize that these things are true of Jesus, and they could even articulate them. 
even put them into words. And yet, they didn't admire Jesus. They weren't impacted by those things. And their lives were not changed by those things about Jesus. And so I say it is a particularly atrocious hypocrisy. This is a frightening hypocrisy. To be able to look at truth, to rightly describe truth, even a way that, in a way that awakens admiration in others, but not to embrace the truth, and not to be impacted by the truth. You see, what they were seeing in Jesus and describing in him was everything they should have been, but weren't. Jesus was partial to no one. The Pharisees were all about partiality. They were all about pleasing people. They did so much of their religion to be seen by men, to please men. Whereas Jesus taught the way of God in truth, the Pharisees didn't do that. They added all of their traditions, all their man-made rules that choked out the truth of God. So these men were seeing these things in Jesus, articulating them about Jesus, but they were not impacted by those things. Friends, that's atrocious hypocrisy. Now, before I go on to the second and third point, which are much briefer, I'm going to pause here and make some applications. I've gotten into the habit of giving applications at the end of the sermon. Spurgeon says, don't always do that, he says, because people get braced for the applications. He says, sometimes bring a lightning bolt out of a pure blue sky, he says. So I'm going to give you some applications now rather than at the end of the sermon because they relate to this first point. And I have these. Be alert to the diverse schemes of the devil. You see that in the way they come to Jesus? At first, they come with this blustery intimidation. By what authority are you doing these things? You don't have the proper ecclesiastical ordination. And the devil comes like a roaring lion through his enemies there. But now he's coming like an angel of light. Oh, Jesus, you defer to no one. You speak the, what, how, how's he coming this time? Flattery. The devil has different devices by which he comes to Jesus. And friends, we have the same enemy, right? We have the same enemy, the devil. And we need to be alert to the various ways that he comes at us. At one point, or with some people, he may tempt to laziness. But he's also capable of, attempt, of tempting you to overwork so that you're so consumed with your work that you're neglecting your family. He can tempt both sides. The devil will tempt some to be unbiblically broad-minded, and we're seeing it in our day. We're seeing Christians compromise in the realm of sexual morality, and under pressure from the broader society, they're caving in to the LGBTQ plus agenda and not being clear about what the Bible is clear about when it comes to biblical morality. We see Christians caving in on the what is clear in the Bible, that men are to be leaders in the home and only men are to be pastors and preachers in the church. And so the devil tempts some to be unbiblically broad-minded. But then he'll turn around and he'll tempt others to be unscripturally narrow and to go beyond what the Bible teach, teaches and make up rules that we would call legalistic. 
and dictating things about dress and food and music and other practices that go beyond what the Bible says. You see, the devil can do both. He can tend to, he can tempt you to be unbiblically broad-minded and ignore Scripture and reject Scripture, and he can cause people or tempt them to be unscripturally narrow and legalistic. He can tempt us to fear and anxiety and to overcautiousness and self-protectiveness, but he can also tempt others to be brash and reckless and presumptuous. He can tempt us by affliction to be complaining and bitter and discontented, but he can also tempt us by abundance to be complacent. And so based on these scenarios, let us be alert to the various devices of the devil, his various schemes, and let's do as Jesus said to Peter in the garden, let's watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And I would say this, know the way the devil tempts you. Are you aware of the devil's ways with you? We all have our particular weaknesses, and we know how the devil likes to get at us, right? Whether it's the roaring lion or whether it's the angel of light, be aware of his schemes with you and be armed against them. And then next, expect Satan's kingdom to be united against Christ. Do we see that in the text? How different were the Herodians from the Pharisees, the super-religious and the superficially religious? They hated each other, but they were united against Christ. We can expect that in our world. That no matter how much the sons of disobedience, the children of the devil, fight among themselves, and let's face it, Satan's kingdom is a kingdom of chaos and confusion and conflict and strife, they will always unite against the truth of God and against the sons of light. And so you can expect that. You can expect that when push comes to shove, both the irreligious and the nominally religious will team up together against the truth, because at bottom, they're in the same kingdom, though different expressions of the same kingdom. They're going to be united against Christ and his people and his truth. And then thirdly, I think drawn honestly from the text, recognize the evil of flattering words and avoid both speaking it and being taken in by it. They come flattering Jesus speaking these honey-coated words to Jesus, buttering him up. Malicious flattery. Don't be a flatterer, brothers and sisters. As I said, the proverb says, he who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. You're not doing good to your neighbor when you flatter them. You're, you're really tempting them to pride and egotism. Don't be a flatterer. How do you recognize flattery? Again, it's self-centered in its motive. We should want to praise, give legitimate, God-centered praise to one another. We need to encourage one another in the Lord, don't we? And it's good to encourage one another. When we see God at work in one another, people using their gifts, being used of God, we want to encourage them. God is at work in you. Brother, I, I so appreciate this about you. I so appreciate God's work in you in this area. I so appreciate your likeness to Christ in this area. That's legitimate praise to encourage people in the Lord. 
Flattery always has a self-centered motive. I want something from you, and so I'm going to speak sweet words to you to gain some advantage, maybe so that you praise me back or, or do something good for me. That's one of the ways you can distinguish malicious flattery from sincere praise. Don't be a flatterer. And don't be a sucker for flattery. Don't be taken in by it. Jesus certainly wasn't. How will that not happen? Well, Romans 12.3 says, Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think so as to have sober judgment. What is the best way to safeguard our hearts against having our feet entangled by flattery? It is to have a realistically humble and accurate view of ourselves. And how do we get that? By looking long and hard at the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you see his beauty, as you see his perfections, it should help put us in our place as to what we are and what we are not. And welcome the reproofs that come through life, whether through humbling circumstances or through other people. Spouses are good for that, aren't they? You think you're a hot shot. Then your wife or your husband says something that reminds you of who you really are. You're not such hot stuff after all. Howard Hendricks was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for years. Very gifted orator. A natural gift of humor. And one time he was at a meeting and um, somebody after the meeting referred to him as a great man. And so he's riding home in the car with his wife and he says to his wife, so uh, how many great men do you know? His wife answered, one less than you think. (laughs) And that was the humbling that he needed. Don't be a sucker for flattery. Don't give it and don't be a sucker for it. Have an increasingly accurate view of yourself, which ought to be very humble because there's a lot of remaining sin in all of us. And then fourth and finally, by way of application here, recognize the marks and danger of hypocrisy. What do we learn from, about hypocrisy from the example of, of these particular hypocrites? Well, they were able to recognize these things about Jesus that were true of Jesus. You're truthful. You defer to no one. You're not partial. You teach the way of God and truth. They were articulating true things about Jesus, but they didn't believe them. One mark of a hypocrite is a hypocrite is able to traffic in spiritual things and religious talk. And religious talk rolls easily off of their lips, but that truth makes no impact upon their lives. They're good religious talkers. They can talk a good game. They may even know the lingo. The truth they speak is not impacting and changing their lives. Let's not be hypocrites in that sense. But having seen the combined questioners, more briefly, the controversial question. They're coming to trap Jesus with a question. What's the question? Look at 14. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Well, I want to make two observations about this question. First, the current controversy that forms the backdrop to this question The question puts to Jesus 
is, is it lawful? Is, in other words, is it right in the sight of God to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? And that's why I've entitled the message to pay or not to pay. That is the question. Now, the tax in view is the Greek word kainsos, from which we get census. And it's basically a head tax. When they took a census, everyone who was counted in the census was obliged to pay this yearly tax. That was a tax from A.D. uh, year 6 onward. And it was a tax paid to the imperial treasury. And that tax became a pointed reminder to the Jews of their Roman domination. It was a special badge of their servitude to Rome. And so the the question of paying this tax to Caesar was an emotional issue among the Jews. The rabbis debated among themselves, was it right or wrong to do it? Now, the Herodians were in favor of it because they were in cahoots with the Roman government. So it would promote them. So yeah, of course you pay that tax because they're in collusion with the Roman government. They had no problems with it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, chafed at the idea of paying this to Rome because of Rome's paganism, and it was humiliating for them, but they generally didn't openly rebel but submitted to it. Now, there was another group of nationalists called the Zealots, and they utterly refused to pay the tax. No way, no how are we going to pay the tax. And Acts 5 and verse 37 actually refers to a certain Judas the Galilean who was killed because he led an insurrection against the census tax. And Flavius Josephus, in his antiquity, says about Judas the Galilean that he said taxation was no better than an introduction to slavery. And he exhorted the Jewish nation to assert their liberty or else God will not assist you. In other words, if you pay that tax to pagan Rome, God's not going to be your helper. And so this was a hot issue among the Jews, to pay or not to pay. And a lot of controversy swirled around that question. Now consider the devious treachery behind the question. Jesus' questioners knew that this was a traumatic issue. And they were trying to plant a landmine under his feet. They were hoping that he would, he would step on a landmine. Now, they probably tried to make it look like an honest debate. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians were total opposites. And it's interesting, Matthew says that the Pharisees actually sent their disciples. In other words, had the seasoned guys come, it would have been obvious. No, look, you, that's not an honest question. We know where you stand, Pharisees. We know where you stand, Herodians. But they sent some of their young disciples, trying to make it look like this is a real ba- debate. Like we're trying to figure out, you know, what's, what's right or, or, or not. But here's the treachery. They knew if Jesus said, yes, pay the tax, it's lawful, that could have gotten him in trouble with the patriotic, pious Jews. Wait a minute. Is this our Messiah? And yet he's telling us to pay this tax to pagan, idolatrous Rome? And it would have put questions in the mind of the pious Jews, gotten him in trouble with them. But if he answered, no, it was not lawful, then he could be charged with rebellion against Rome. And the Herodians would have come and said, this Jesus is acting like a zealot, and he's forbidding the paying of the tax to Rome. So they thought they had Jesus again on the horns of an inescapable dilemma. Either he was going to compromise theologically and bow to Rome, or he's going to compromise politically and defy Rome. We've got him now. Well, the confounding answer that Jesus gives. Once again, 
We're going to marvel the amazing wisdom of the Son of God as he once again confounds his enemies. Verses 15 to 17. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought him one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were greatly amazed at him. First, Jesus discerns their hearts, knowing their hypocrisy. Now, Jesus knows the hearts of all of us. I don't know that it took supernatural discernment, though, for him to discern their hypocrisy. That was rather obvious. He discerns their hearts. Then he exposes their wicked motives. He says, why are you testing me? And that word testing is an interesting word. It's the Greek word perazo. Sometimes it's translated tempt. It's used of God who tests his people. And why does God test us? He doesn't tempt us. He tests us to prove our faithfulness. But the devil perazos us. Why? He wants to tempt us to get us to fail and to fall. And Jesus is using it in that sense. Why are you tempting me? Why are you using this question to accuse me and to find fault with me? And then Jesus confounds their plot. Just as in the last encounter, we see the uncanny wisdom of Jesus. He says, bring me a denarius. Notice he didn't produce one, but he asked them to produce one. And maybe they got it from their own pocket. Bring me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, the denarius was a small silver coin. It was about a day's wage at that time. The Senate in Rome could only produce copper coins. Only the emperor could produce silver coins. So this is something that was from the emperor, and it went directly into the emperor's treasury. On the front of that coin was the head of the ruler. On the back, the Roman ruler was pictured seated on a throne wearing a diadem, a crown, and clothed as a high priest. The ruler at that time was Tiberius. So the inscription on the front said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the back it said, Pontiff Maxim, high priest. The emperor of Rome claimed a form of deity. The word likeness, whose likeness is on it, is not a mere resemblance, it's an actual representation. So the reflection of the sun in the water is the acon. A statue is an acon, or we say icon. A child is the acon of his parents. The emperor's image on the coin was derived from his actual face. Whose likeness is on it? They answer Caesar's. The image of Caesar, the idolatrous inscription is of Caesar. And then comes the stroke of wisdom. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now you can just imagine his enemies. They are just drooling with anticipation. We've got him now. He's on the horns of a dilemma. On which horn is he going to impale himself? What landmine is he going to step on? Is he going to commit political suicide by denying patronage to Rome, and we can accuse him of being a rebel and speaking against Caesar? Or is he going to commit religious suicide and say, no, uh, yeah, pay the tax, in which his followers will say, how can this be the Messiah if he's endorsing idolatrous worship of the Roman emperor? But as the answer comes home to their ears, you can just imagine 
their countenances drop and the wind taken out of their proud sails. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Hmm. Did he commit political suicide by denying tribute to Caesar? No. He said, you have a denarius, it means you're under Caesar's rule. The Roman government has given you benefits. You have Roman roads. You have the Roman postal system. You're protected by the Roman army. You owe certain things to the Roman government. And so render to Caesar the tax. It's something that is due to him. So did Jesus commit political suicide? No. Did he commit religious suicide and alienate the pious, patriotic Jewish population? Well, no, he didn't do that either. Render to God the things that are God's. Pay to Caesar what is due him, the tax. But worship is due only to God. So don't give him worship. Give him his tax, but don't give him worship. Render to God the things that are God's. And they realized that Jesus had escaped both horns of the dilemma. He had not opened himself up to idolatry and offended the religious sensibilities of the Jews, nor did he open himself up to anarchy, charge of anarchy and rebellion. And the text says they were greatly marveling at him. There's a, a little prefix on, on the verb there. They greatly wondered at him. He was super amazing. So what has Jesus done by this answer? He has silenced his enemies, but he's done more than that. He's actually indicted his enemies. Remember the Herodians and the Jews. The Herodians and the Pharisees are coming at him. On the one hand, he affirmed the legitimacy of human government, didn't he? Pay the tax to Caesar. That would have been an indictment to the Pharisees and especially to the zealots who were chafing under Roman domination. No, the Roman government is not perfect. It's got an absolute monarchy. It's got an abusive tax system. There's widespread slavery. There's wholesale idolatry, but it's a legitimate government. Pay the tax to the government. That would have been an indictment of the religious Pharisees and especially of the zealots. But on the other hand, by his words, he pronounces the limitation of human government. Render to God the things that are God's. Government has legitimate authority, but it is limited authority, and it must never encroach upon the rights and prerogatives of the God who gave that authority. And you're not to render worship to Caesar. That belongs to God alone. This would have been an indictment to the Herodians, the worldly ones, the secularists who really weren't worshiping God in truth. They only had a veneer of religion. So, in closing, let's stand in further awe of our wise Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, who with amazing wisdom once again confounds his enemies. This is nothing less than divine wisdom because Jesus is the God-man. But before I close, let me say something to anyone who may not be a believer here in Jesus. We noted earlier, it says, Jesus, he, knowing their hypocrisy, see, Jesus knows the hearts of everybody. He knows what is in your heart. He knows all about you. 
And if you're outside of saving faith in Jesus, what is it that he knows about you? What he knows about you is what he knows about the entire human race. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've sinned and you cannot measure up to God's perfections. He also knows this about you, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. If you're outside of Jesus, you are spiritually dead, unconnected from God, disconnected from God. And if you die that way, you will die eternally in hell. And the only way for you to be forgiven and have your eternal destiny reversed and be headed for heaven is you will repent or turn from your independence from God, your rebellion against God, and put your full trust in Jesus Christ, whom God sent to suffer and to die in the place of sinners so that by faith in him, God will take all of your sin, all of it, past, future, Put it on Jesus, punish him in your stead and give you his perfect righteousness to your record, a righteousness which will be your passport to heaven when you die. If you're not a believer, I plead with you to come to Jesus this very day. And if you have questions, seek out myself or others who can answer those questions. I'm going to stop there, but... I've been wanting to bring some messages about our responsibility to government because there's so much government usurpation and encroachment upon our rights these days. And I think this is an excellent springboard from which to do it. So I'm going to take at least one sermon, maybe two, to talk about our responsibility to government. In light of Jesus' clear words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God, no better text to pursue this subject. And so we're going to take a little excursus from Mark and consider those, these import, that important subject in our day. Let's pray. Jesus, we stand in awe of you. Every display of divine wisdom. We are told to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity, knowing how we ought to answer every person. Oh, you are our perfect model. You always answered rightly and wisely. Help us to be more like you. Thank you for the way you confounded your enemies, but then ultimately submitted to them and allowed them to arrest you and even to kill you, not for wrongs done by you, but by us, that we might have eternal salvation. We give you praise. We give you adoration.